If you have a Bible, would you turn or click to Romans? The book of Romans, for those of you who are guests, we take books of the Bible and we work our way through them and we find ourselves today in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 13 through 24. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety and it is a joy to sit here with you over God's word and to focus on this idea of inclusion by grace. We have been accepted and included by grace. And how should that change our lives? So I want to read Romans 11, beginning in verse 13. And the word of God says this. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. That is, non-Jews. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy... So are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. And if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then, the kindness And the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off. And even they. If they do not continue in their unbelief. Will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Let's pray. Father in heaven, come now, we pray. You have been with us as we have been able to shout hallelujah, that is, church, let's praise the Lord together. You've been with us, leading us in worship, as we've been able to sing about how mighty you are. There is nothing that is greater than you. And you showed your greatness and your love by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone upon whom our life rests. 
And we say and celebrate together through song, through prayer, that you are good and your mercies endure forever. We have been with you in this moment as we have honored people, sought to speak of your grace seen in their lives, and we thank you for not only their hard work, but your sustaining mercy in their lives. You are with us even down the hallway where our kids are sitting and those precious leaders are pouring over them in prayer and giving them the word and we praise you. We praise you that you are with them because your word says that as we serve the least of these, even as we welcome children as Jesus did, we are actually serving Jesus himself. Encourage those workers, I pray, with your presence. And now as we open up your word, you promise that you are living and active on these very pages. And so we ask you would humble our hearts, strengthen our faith, and give us joy, unity in Christ. Make us a deep, rich, committed, thankful, happy family called the church that lives radical lives of love because we have been so loved. We ask for your mercy now in Jesus' name. Amen. So my father, when I was growing up, he was a middle school science teacher, 7th and 8th grade, and he had a key to the middle school gym. Now we love basketball, but he also was uh, really faithful to pour into college students in our local church. And so many times the college students would come over to the house and play cards late at night, but sometimes they would all meet at the gym, and they would play basketball, and I would get to tag along. Now, I am in middle school about this time, so still really young, still, you know, middle school uncoordinated, and all kinds of things that came with the fact that I got cut not once, but twice in middle school from the basketball team. And yet, I sit in there, and I watch them play. And as I watch them play, they are sprinting up and down the gym. They got mad skills. From a middle school perspective, you know, they were just one step away from the NBA. You know, I'm just watching and standing in awe. And then I got the call. (laughs) I was in the room. I didn't get a phone call. We didn't have, you know, this is pre-cell phone moments, you know, unless they were the size of Montana. But I'm sitting in this gym and they said, do you want to play? And it's like you look around like, me? It's like, sweet, let's do it. So astonished, I jump in, and they include me, and we're playing. But can I tell you what happened? The next time, next time I went to the gym, I expected to play. I anticipated that I was going to play. Because in my middle school brain, when I was playing with them, I didn't quite calculate the fact of how accommodating they were in their game. They weren't going as fast, they weren't passing as hard, they were giving me space so I could shoot it. I wasn't aware of all of that, I just all of a sudden thought, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good and that's why they asked me to play. And then when they said, no, you're not going to be able to play this time, we're going to play, it made no sense. Like, injustice, like I'm good enough to be out there. I was a little blinded by my pride. My arrogance. What once was astonished at grace turned into the pride of, I deserve to be there. A distortion 
of what was really happening. And we can do this spiritually. We were lost, needy, aware of our sin. We understood we were prideful and we couldn't save ourselves. We finally got the, gr- the grasp that we were not only lawbreakers, but that we loved things more than God himself. And we were in massive need of grace and forgiveness. And then we hear the news. The news that God in his amazing love, he came to us. He sent his only son to do what we couldn't do. To rectify all the wrongs that we have brought all throughout our lives. And he took them all upon his shoulders and he died in our place. And three days later, he was raised from the dead to say sin is defeated. Satan does not get the final word and death does not win. And he says that by simply saying, I am a sinner. I cannot fix myself. I need Jesus to change my life. By that declaration of faith, we can be saved. And now we are astonished that by no contribution of our own, God came to us and made us new. Amazing grace. But then spiritually, all of a sudden, we can believe grace got us in the door, but we've got to keep ourselves. And then we get really fascinated with our own goodness. We get really caught up with how much better we are than someone else. We can act like middle school Sean. Forgetting grace. Shifting from I'm accepted by grace Shifting from I am included by grace. And what happens is the erosion of that's a privilege to that's a right. From astonishment to arrogance, I deserve. We forget grace. And so Paul in this moment is wanting to bring us back in some senses to the beginning That we are the undeserving. And the only fact that we have been made children is that He has chosen us by grace alone. And apart from grace, we are one click away from wrecking our entire lives. That is the kindness that's meant to be enjoyed and rested in. So today, Paul walks through these three things. The beauty of salvation, the danger of arrogance, and the support of God's kindness. The beauty of salvation, the danger of arrogance, and the support of God's kindness. Let's catch each other up on where we are in Paul's train of thought. Paul is saying, I am grieved that my fellow kinsman, Israel, has been rejecting Jesus. They have rejected him. And therefore, they have been rejected by him. And now the quandary of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, does that mean that God is not keeping his promises? Has his word failed because he made all of these promises to Israel? The answer that Paul has repeatedly sounded is no. No, on the contrary, they have hardened their hearts. It's called unbelief. And that unbelief has led to their rejection. 
But two things. There's still a remnant. Not a whole shirt, but there's a a small portion. A small little piece of the fabric that has placed their trust in Jesus. A remnant that still will not bow the knee to Baal and have bowed the knee to Jesus. But on top of that, this massive, in general terms speaking, total rejection by ethnic Israel was predicted by God. It was actually part of his plan in that sense. And Paul answers the question that we would all ask, why? Why is that the plan? And Paul answers, Israel's corporate rejection by Jesus creates a shift in focus of the gospel going to all the nations, everyone who is not Israel, the gospel going out to all the peoples, that that's part of God's plan. You hear it in Isaiah 49 verse 6, when it's said of the servant, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's too small of an aim. He says, I will make you servant a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And later on we'll hear in Romans 15 that he does that so that all the nations might glorify God for his mercy. For his mercy that the ones who were by nature total rejectors of God, worshiping all kinds of pagan idols, reflected nothing of obedience to God's law, have now been by mercy alone made a part of God's family, and they now inexplicably love him from their heart. It's mercy. This was part of God's plan. So now Paul expresses the idea. So, Is God then done with Israel? Since the focus, the light has been shown on the nations and the focus has been shifted, is God done with Israel? And Paul says, no. No. That there's not only a current remnant that will not bow the knee and he will always keep a current remnant of those who are of Jewish ethnicity but who are believing in Jesus. But he also goes on to say, which Pastor Ranjur shared with us last week, that there is, there will be another shift, a massive ingathering of ethnic Jews as the people of God. And I don't know how and I don't know when, but this is God's plan. God is not done with Israel, now through the remnant, but definitely not in the scope of all of salvation history. And so look at our passage today. Romans 11, verse 13, he speaks to this and he says, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, all you non-Jews who've been saved by grace. He says, Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, that was kind of Paul's moniker, that was his title. Peter to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. He says, I magnify my ministry. (laughs) He doesn't do that to say, look at me, I'm a great evangelist. He does that because of this very sentence. In order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous 
and thus watch some of them be saved. He says, because if their rejection, the rejection of Jesus from a corporate sense, this general sense, if their rejection means that the world, that is the Gentiles, the nations would be reconciled to God. So you following this. This is a summary of what I've just been talking about for a bit. If Israel's rejection means that the Gentiles actually can be reconciled to God, what then will their future acceptance mean, the future acceptance of ethnic Israel, mean but life from the dead? That is, it'll bring about the final resurrection. The end of all things. And all wrongs will be made right and will be in the presence of God. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits, that is Israel, is then again made holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. It's an amazing comment about how God works. Matthew 24, 14 talks about his global purpose among the nations. And it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, you could put in, Gentiles. All the people groups. And then the end will come. You want to know when the end of all things will happen? It's when all the peoples have bowed a knee to Jesus. And there's a representation from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what God says. And we don't know the time, but we know it will happen. And in the same way, he talks in Romans 11, 11 through 12. He says, so I ask, did the Jews, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous, to make Israel jealous. If their trespass means riches for the world, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? What does this mean for you who have come here really anxious and weary? I've just really given a lot of mental stretching to you. It could be summarized in a sentence. If God has the whole universe and its scope planned out like this, and so far everything has worked according to his plan, you can trust him with your little blip on the screen life of anywhere from 20 to 100 years. You can trust him. Paul is trying to humble us to say, trust God that he's got you. He's got a plan. It will happen. He's declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is yet to come. That's who our God is. You can trust him. But there's something else that's pretty fascinating about our passage. And it says this. Paul is going to magnify the fact that he's going to all the nations in order that his fellow Jews might get jealous. He wants them to have this type of jealousy. What is that? It's a remarkable comment about the beauty of our salvation. Something so amazing that would happen in the lives of all non-Jews that trust in Jesus, and really those any person that trusts in Jesus, something so astounding that when people look on it, they're like, why is that happening? What's that? I want that. Give me more of that. 
I'm jealous for that. That's what's going to happen. It speaks of the beauty of salvation. What is this beautiful salvation? It's the fact that Jesus came to us. In our places of weakness, in our struggle, in our constant failure, in our inner turmoil, in our great fear and deep shame, in our severe sadness, he drew near. And God's grace opened our eyes when we were blind. And God's grace opened our mind when we couldn't understand. And God's grace gave us hearts that loved Jesus and love his word when we did not before. God's grace has shifted our lives from participating in a religion to loving the person and work of Jesus. It's like the difference in looking at a picture of the beach and sitting on the beach with the water hitting your feet. It's a total shift in desire and experience. It's like Jonathan Edwards talks about knowing honey. He said there's a difference in knowing the chemical composition of honey and knowing honey in that you put it on your tongue and you're like, that's amazing. The Bible speaks of taste and see that the Lord is good and we don't get those spiritual taste buds unless the Lord opens our eyes, opens our ears, opens our hearts, gives us love. That's the salvation that has happened in our hearts. Jesus is not just a historical figure, he's a treasure. The glorious satisfier of the soul, the shepherd who protects and satisfies and guides and causes us to rest, who alone can satisfy, this is our salvation. And when we just live in that, the world will look on and want something that we have. There's a jealousy that will be evoked because broken, messy people know where to go in their suffering. Know what to do with their brokenness. They say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And he keeps showing us his greatness. As a parent, there are times when want to play a family game. So we're going to play a game outside, but sometimes what happens is everybody kind of has an opinion about how the game should go. And that happens. We all have opinions. Opinions are great. That's what leaders have. It's good. Okay. So we all have opinions. But finally, once we say this is the way we're going to roll, what if, just hypothetically, what if a child says, I don't want to play that way? They start getting upset. They get frustrated. They harden their heart. This is the way the game is going to play. It's going to be best for the family. No, I don't want to play. I know none of you kids out there have ever done that, right? Never done that. Okay, maybe you have, because I know I did as a kid. What do you do as a parent? Well, hypothetically, don't give in to the controlling moment. You don't give in to the stubbornness. You say, okay. You're not going to be able to go inside. You can sit right here. But stubbornness, sin, it makes us be alone. But I still want you to be a part of our family. So you're going to be out here. You're going to watch us play. And at any time, if you want to come and join the family, we would love to have you. But when you come, you can only come and play the way we're going to play as a family. you know sitting over there and so what do you do you go on as a family and you go and you play and you laugh and you're having a lot of fun and then the next thing you see out the corner of your eye someone's shown up and they're playing with you 
and you welcome them in. And now all of a sudden the heart has softened a little bit. Why? Because they saw something so fun, so attractive. Stubbornness was no longer appealing. Something else was. Salvation. Something so mysterious, so miraculous, so wonderful, that as we live as the imperfect church, but as we are the church, as we walk in a new life, it's going to be attractive. Not all hearts turn, but we do pray that stubbornness will be turned from and that God's people will grow because of that beauty and that salvation. But there's not only a beautiful salvation, there's a danger that Paul lays out here. There's not only an unmatchless love, but there's a heart that can get used to that love and take it for granted. Paul takes a turn here in the passage and he begins to rebuke Gentile recipients of such grace with these words. Look at Romans eleven, seventeen. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be, what's the next word? Okay, that was really bad. Okay, there's a Bible, okay, we're looking at together, okay, let's read it. It says, do not be arrogant toward the branches okay so now he uses a metaphor image for us it's of grafting and a lot of us don't do this a lot here's a picture of a grafted branch so what happens is you take a branch that is has health and it is sliced and then another branch that has no life of its own no system of life-giving nutrients of its own is placed in there and grafted in. You can see a picture now of kind of, yeah, I just Googled it, you know. How do you graft? I'm no expert in this. But you see the peeling back of the healthy branch. You see the attachment of the branch that won't survive without being grafted in. And you see the binding up of it together so that they actually form together as one branch. This is the grafted branch. And so he's saying there were branches that were growing up And some of them, because of unbelief, have been pruned and cut off. And now you, a wild olive shoot, that is, the Gentiles, you've been brought into that Jewish branch. Jesus even says in John chapter 4, he says, and salvation is from the Jews. That means it has its roots, not in Judaism as a religion, but has its roots in God being faithful to the Jewish people. Our salvation hangs upon a God who chose the Jewish people as the epicenter of his salvific work. And so do you see, if these dead branches, the Gentiles, were not grafted into the life-giving source of God's salvation through the Jews, they would not make it. They would die. And God in His mercy has taken what should be dead and attached it to life, supporting it by His nutrients and grace. And yet, 
the, Jew, the Gentiles have now become middle school shine again, thinking they deserve to be there, thinking that somehow they have life because of their goodness and have forgotten grace. He calls it arrogance. He calls it pride. This is the point. That we seek a salvation by our own works. And if we do that, if we don't believe in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, we will be cut off. The Gentiles have tasted mercy. And now they are tempted to walk in arrogance. What is the point? Arrogance has no place for the people of God. If salvation is by grace, then pride is absurd. Condescending looks are foolish. Self-righteous judgment is just confusing. It's like trying to cook with no heat. It doesn't make sense. It's arrogant. Because salvation is by grace, Test. There we are. If anybody wants to run batteries, you can. If not, I'll just keep holding this beast. I'm going to trust that the Lord needed you to have a break, right, as I'm talking about arrogance. Because <laughs> what I'm about to tell you is I can only talk about it because I have it and I need remedy for it. So it says arrogance has no place for the people of God. If salvation is by grace, then our boast is only in Christ. His kindness has taken what is dead and made it alive. What does arrogance sound like? Well, he tells us in the passage, there's this sense that we are better because we have followed Jesus and they have not. There's a looking down upon the Jews who have rejected Jesus. You see it in verse 18. Don't be arrogant toward the branches. If you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. You see it there. They're looking down upon the Jewish people. Because they have rejected Jesus. What does arrogance look like? It says, we are better because we have followed Jesus and you have not. It's a condescending look towards unbelievers. As if you're not where you are, but by grace. It can also happen within the church. And that's where we'll go in Romans 14. Where we are better than you are because we have freedoms and you're living in a bound way according to the law. That's what Romans 14 was. I've got a conviction here and I don't have a conviction here. And so now we take all of our opinions and we start beating each other up with it and we look down upon others who don't have the same convictions we have. It's arrogance. But if it's all of grace, 
then there's nothing to boast in and only something to receive. If this is what God's people are meant to be characterized, then why do we treat people like we are better than them? Why do we act like the strengths in our lives are ours and we look down on others' weaknesses? Why do we lose our cool with others' deficiencies? Why do we treat people as if our successes and our wisdom is owing to our goodness? I know those examples because I battle that temptation in my own heart sometimes. Paul presses on our will and says, do not be arrogant. You have died to that arrogance. Don't pick it back up. We would have died without the gracious, tender, fathering, shepherdly-like care of taking us and grafting us in. He is the nutrients. Tim Keller warns us that we have, if we have that pride, we have become middle class in spirit. That God has helped us some, but we have carried ourselves the rest of the way. But the Bible says, out of Jesus' mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit. The ones who say, I have nothing to bring. I need Christ. The major flags of this kind of arrogant self-righteousness is not only the struggle to believe the best about others. A flag that we battle with arrogance is a cynicism or a pattern of criticism. But even deeper than that, one of the clearest evidences in my life can be if I ever slide into prayerlessness. The handling it of myself rather than the constant privilege of walking in the presence of my Savior, asking Him for help. Oh, dear friends, Paul says don't be arrogant. His argument here is don't be arrogant because you are being supported. You see that in verse 18? He says, okay, if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. It is remember You are not the one that is supporting. God supports. And he is using and grafting you into his work among the Jews. And that's the only way you have life. Don't be arrogant. The second one is don't be arrogant because a continually arrogant heart is bound for judgment. Where do I get that? Look at verse 19. Right after he says, okay, so if, if you are arrogant, remember that you didn't support the root, but the root supports you, then you're going to say, this is kind of what um, arrogance does, it defends quickly, then you'll say, but branches were broken off, that is the Jews broken off, so that I might be grafted in. Paul says, that's true, that's true. Just note to self. You can be completely right and still be wrong. Because God is not just after what you know. He's after your heart. Paul says that's true. 
And those Jews were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, right now, this is a perfect tense verb. You have in the past and you are continuing to do so. You're standing fast in the faith. So don't be proud. Fear. Fear what? 21. Verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, why do you think he's going to spare you? If he didn't spare the Jewish people in their continual unbelief and rejection of Jesus, why do you think he would spare you in your continual unbelief and arrogance? Note then, he says, verse 22, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness otherwise you too will be cut off lesson pride is not something to sit in it is toxic sludge it's tempting for us all and the heart that hears this right now these very clear words from scripture and doesn't care and says I'm going to live my life the way I want to live it. I will not bow my knee to Jesus and his ways. I will keep boasting in myself and not boasting in him. The heart that continues to do that should be afraid. Don't be proud, but fear, it says. When we flirt with pride, the right response is fear. But hear this. God's people, because our God is a holding on to us God, God's people will never walk away from God. God is too kind, too loving, and he will not let us go. He keeps his covenant with us. The people of God will not remain in arrogance, and they will be pricked this very morning when they hear these words. They'll be pricked by the warning and they'll take the word as like a guardrail. I've been running in arrogance. Ram! I hit the guardrail. What's a guardrail do? It says, get back on the road. And the life that just floors the gas and says, I don't care about the guardrail. I'm going through it. This is the way I'm going. You go over a cliff. But believers, the way they handle warning passages like this is they hit the guardrail and they say, Ugh. it's like you shake it off. It's like, I want to follow Jesus. And you're saying that. I don't want to be prideful anymore. That is God's holding grace. It's his restraining grace, his pulling grace. And so the call today is for repentance. If, it says in verse 18, if you are arrogant, remember. What's that mean? Code word. Give you the secret code. It means repent, trust. You don't support yourself. And he's saying you are supported. That was Pastor Travis when he taught on Romans 11, 1 through 6 or 7. It was 
God is holding on to you, that's what he wants you to focus on. God is holding on to you. Repentance is not some grand performance in the courtroom of God so that God will finally give you a listening ear. It's not proving that you are worthy of his love. Repentance is not trying to pay for wrong actions or your wrong heart. Repentance is receiving. It's being set free. And it literally is just doing this, maybe for the first time. I have been arrogant. God, I have been cynical. I have been too angry. I've been anxious, and I'm not trusting you. I've been jealous. I need your grace. Friends, when you sin, just be honest with what God already knows. As a parent, sometimes I can see ways that I can't see as my own individual, and I just look at my kids, and it's just like, my love doesn't change. I will always love you. You don't have to be perfect. Just own it. And be set free by saying, I was proud. Lord, I need your help. I lusted. Lord, I need your help. I lied. Lord, I need your help. I was too angry at you. Lord, I need your help. It's just that simple prayer. Lord, help me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what Paul is calling for here. And whenever you say those kind of words, Acts 3 says that you are being rushed experientially into the presence of Almighty God. And in His presence, He is refreshing you. You know that passage, right? Turn from your sin, that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance leads you to refreshment. And so... He says to us all, you are loved. You've received kindness. Walk in my love. Don't be arrogant. And then he ends in verses 23 and 24 by saying, don't be arrogant because God is still at work. Look at verses 23 and 24. He says, and if they do not continue in their unbelief, that is the Jews, they will be grafted in. Now, I just want you to pause there. He's saying, those who walked in unbelief and hardness of heart, until the final judgment, the word is not rendered. It says in 2 Peter that right now, the fact that God has not brought his judgment rod yet, that it's his patience right now. And what do we read is, if you don't continue in unbelief, the power of God can meet you. Isn't that what it says? Look at it. And even if they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in. That same power is called kindness up above. The kindness of God. 
the mercy of God. And he says, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature, Gentiles, if that's your story, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree at the end of all things? Or that remnant who believes. Rather than arrogance, the call is for humble love towards one another and living in the loving kindness of God. And that's where I want to end. Because Paul has taught us of the beauty of salvation and he has warned us of the danger of arrogance. But he also wants us to see the kindness that supports us. The support of God's kindness. Do you see the phrase that says, continue to walk in kindness? You see that phrase in verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Paul is primarily speaking in this passage to the arrogant heart. This tone is an appropriate tone towards the arrogant heart. But in tons of other places, he speaks with a different tone toward the afflicted and the sufferer. Not every reader who's read this passage is an arrogant heart towards others. Sometimes your heart is the opposite. I don't mean that your heart is humble, but I mean that the opposite of looking down on others sometimes is looking down on what? Yourself. You wonder at times if God is going to draw near, if your case is too hard, if you are too bad, if the situation is too dire, and I want you to focus on the kindness of our Lord. His kindness is a present kindness, an active kindness, a supplying kindness, a supporting kindness. And when he says continue in kindness, what does it mean? This is really helpful for you when you're reading through passages. If I didn't ask you that question, you probably would have just been fine to keep moving on. What does it mean to continue in kindness? He is an ocean of kindness. He is a well of kindness that doesn't run dry. He is a shield of kindness that doesn't stop protecting. He can't be exhausted. He is ever-present kindness that's stronger than our greatest challenge and more satisfying than our greatest desire. And if you, you and I, are battling not with the arrogance of self-righteousness this morning, but with the fragility of ourselves feeling alone, almost unable emotionally or spiritually, feeling like we got no strength or we're exhausted or we're weary, where do we focus our mind right now? You focus your mind on the kindness of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon talked about when he would read the Bible, when he was in a frail spot of mind, a depressed state of mind, he said, the promises got lowercase and the words of judgment got all caps. And he would just read through and they would become all caps. And all he could see was the judgment of God because he felt like he deserved it rather than the promises of God. 
What I think is happening here is that the arrogant can wrongfully put the kindness of God in all caps and say, eh, my arrogance is not that big of a deal. God's kind. He'll forgive. What Paul wants them to see is the severity of God in all caps. Do not walk in arrogance. But for the frail soul, for the suffering soul, to the one afflicted and the one who is weary, you're tempted to focus on the severity of God. I'm being punished because I deserve it. I'm a horrible person. There's no way out of this. This is too big. He wants the kindness of God to be in all caps. The ever-present, always-flowing kindness of God. That God supports you. You and I need to be reminded of his grace today. You're never going to face anything alone. He is perfect strength when you are weak. A song called the Isaiah Song by Maverick City, Chandler Moore, in one of the improv moments at the very end. Sometimes I'll run to that song. That song is like eternal. I know it's not eternal because I'm not in heaven yet, but like it keeps going forever. And if you listen to the whole thing at the end, you could feel this kind of spirit-prompted moment when he says, if you feel at the end of yourself, that is just the beginning of God. This is the kindness of our God. When you feel like you're weak, he is strong. When you feel at the end of yourself, it's just the beginning of God. He wants further meditation of what it means to literally just walk in his kindness. Walk in his kindness. He is tender and loving. Look at the phrases, continue in kindness, or verse 20, keep standing fast in faith. What does that mean? Every day, you and I wake up in a battle. Will I trust the Lord today? Will I take him at his word? Do I believe he's with me? Is he going to supply? This is the battle. The phrase I use for this battle is a phrase that is really not a real phrase. It's called active reclination. Yes, reclination is not a word. You'll get it autocorrected every time. Sometimes to articulate spiritual realities, we need different language. You can't miss the fact that he is telling us not only to rest in his kindness, but to act. Reclination, what does it mean to recline? Think of your greatest chair, comfiest spot, you just enjoy, right? The spiritual walk is enjoying his kindness. It's it's the burden of a weary traveler if I said, hey, I've got the greatest meal here for you, and i got an amazing bed for you, go lay down. That's the burden that you're being invited into. It's like the basketball player who if I said, hey, I got you front row seats to tonight's NBA Finals game, all you got to do is go and enjoy. Is that a burden to you? It's not a burden. This is the invitation when he says, continue in the Lord's kindness. And the image that comes to mind is one of a painter, and I'm ending here. It's one of a painter. And I think there are tons of faithful churches 
We are fighting to be a faithful church to supply and to strengthen. But here's the image. You've been given all the materials, the canvas, the time, the methodological instruction, the lessons you need. But if you're going to produce the painting, you have to paint. You have to paint. It cannot be your spouse's job, your children's job, your friend's job, your church's job, your pastor's job. It cannot be your neighbor's job. You have everything in front of you to be in Continuing in his kindness is not simply reclination. It's activity. It's taking a step in that grace, trusting that he will supply you with everything you need and sitting with open Bible and asking God to do a work in your life. Nobody can do it for you. But I promise you, you sit still with Jesus in his word. You commit yourself to praying day after day. You will be a part of this church regularly. And what will happen is a revival of soul. An understanding that will grow. A wisdom that will increase. A love that will blossom. And God will keep you to the end. Dear friends, we have a beautiful salvation. There are dangers of walking in arrogance, and God tells us to run away from it. But he invites you and I to walk in his kindness. He loves you. You won't face any moment of your life alone. So let's walk together in his kindness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you are for us and not against us. And I pray that for the weary soul today, your kindness would be in all caps. I ask, O oh God, that you would draw near to us. I ask, O oh God, that you would strengthen us. The emphasis in this moment, Father, is I pray that you will you will, through imperfect vessels like us, paint a beautiful picture that will be a testimony to the world. We aren't left alone saying, you better get your act together. But instead, you've drawn near to us. You've saved us by grace. Help us to never forget it. Help us to become aware of our arrogance and help us just to be honest. Wherever sin abounds, and help us to receive your kindness. We don't have to earn it. It's finished on Calvary. So help us now, I pray, to walk in your love. We do ask, oh God, that right now, as we declare your greatness, that you would heal the broken heart. You would bind up the wounds. You would remove the sin that's really crushing our soul. And that, Father, we would feel washed today. 
Thank you for supporting us and never leaving us alone. Thank you for your kindness towards your church. We pray all this in Jesus' name.